Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses, it is time to flip the switch into the on position and turn on the lights because we're back for Bright Man, the show here in the Aqua Cave where myself, that being Johnny C, gets to talk about whatever bright idea pops into his head. And I want to thank you for coming back. I had a lot of fun releasing the episode about the 1990 Intercontinental Championship Tournament and all of the shenanigans surrounding that. If you haven't checked it out, do so. I think you'll enjoy it. But if you have, go ahead and muster forward. At Muster? Is that even a fucking word? I know mustard is a word. Muster the strength to defeat your enemies. Yeah, that feels like something that Vince McMahon would say. So we're going to go with muster. Yeah, that is a real word. Fuck it. Let's keep going. So, look, I know when you pressed play on today's episode, you thought to yourself, ugh, do I really want to go on this journey? Because I always put in the title what we're going to be talking about. And hear me out, okay? Before we go any further, I want to promise you that this is going to be a lot of fun, as always, but it's also, you know, I'm going to be serious about our topic today. I really want to deep dive into what we're going to be discussing about and maybe look at it from a different angle. We all have preconceived notions about this concept, but let's just take a breath, erase what we know from our heads, and just go with what I say as the gospel moving forward. That's really the best way to live your lives. Just forget about every notion and opinion you have about anything and just absorb minds and you mine as your fuck minds <laughs> absorb minds that's cool we don't do second takes around here but as the, as the title card said on your podcast listening device today we're talking about the under faker that's right the under faker so let's get in the proper mindset and really start talking about everything that has anything to do with the under faker, okay? So it's 1994, and you're a fan of the World Wrestling Federation, and you immediately start to notice a couple of things right from the get-go. 1994 is the first year in the last 10 years that the WWF will have absolutely zero appearances or anything to do with Hulk Hogan. The WWF new generation is finally fully taking hold of the promotion. Brett the Hitman Hart is our new hero. Lex Luger has revealed himself to be a bit of a zero. But one constant still remains the undertaker at this point in his career however he's still sort of a non a new attraction i mean he's been around for almost four years but he is a bit of a cartoon and it is 1994 so that seems to line up with the presentation at the time but soon he would be taking an extended leave of absence that would perhaps lead to his most cartoonish, dare I say, storyline. The Undertaker versus The Underfaker, which we lovingly call the Brian Lee version of The Undertaker. And this seems like a crazy concept rooted and designed for a Saturday morning cartoon. Well, that doesn't really surprise me. 
because the more I look at this storyline, the more I peel I peel back the layers of the onion, as my buddy Shrek would say. But seriously, it makes sense that it feels like a cartoon, because if you look at perhaps the origin or the genesis of this storyline, it comes from a funny book. Now look, I don't have any evidence you know, to make a claim that the WWF was copying this storyline. And I don't think that they were, okay? But I do think what I'm about to talk about was definitely, had definitely permeated into the cultural zeitgeist of the time. On November 18th, 1992, the last son of Krypton, the man of tomorrow, the Ubermensch, the SummerSlam. Okay, I made that one up and threw it in. That's not really one of his nicknames. But the Superman had reached the final stages of a grueling battle with a monster known as Doomsday. At the cost of his own life, he defeated this monster and died in the arms of the woman he loved. Children, men... Women, humans, would mourn the loss of their savior as we laid to rest Superman in his tomb in the grand city of Metropolis. Months later, four men would appear from the sky and all lay claim to the mantle of the Superman. The public was confused, but also relieved that perhaps their savior had returned. Over time, it would be revealed that none of these men were in fact the Superman himself. They were not Kal-El of Krypton or Clark Kent of Smallville, Kansas. Two of them were individuals inspired by the sacrifice of the Superman who looked to carry his mantle. One was a living force from the Superman's home planet that was designed to make sure the Kryptonian intelligence and the nature of the Kryptonian society lived on forever. Yeah, that one's a little crazy. <laughs> However, one was an evil reflection of the Superman himself and tried to take the mantle of the Superman for himself so he could corrupt it and claim vengeance on the human race that he felt scorned by. This was the cyborg Superman. He clearly looked like the Superman, talked like the Superman, behaved like the Superman, but something was different. Finally, when the cyborg Superman revealed his true nature and destroyed a large portion of California, Kal-El of Krypton was resurrected and return to us to defeat the imposterous cyborg Superman. Now, yeah, I may have waxed poetic about the very famous comic book storyline, The Death and Return of Superman, but over 6 million copies of Superman 75, that's the issue where he dies, were sold worldwide. And like I had, say, had said earlier, I have zero proof, and I don't really believe that like Vince and company uh, were stealing the Death of Superman storyline. But you really honestly can't help but see the similarities. With that in our mind, 
we have spent so much time out of our collective lives connected to The Undertaker. If you've been a fan for any amount of time, you sort of know the story of The Undertaker. But, and we sort of glance back at history, and we, we do. We make fun of this storyline, and I, and I think for good point. But, but we don't spend a lot of time with the character who's from an even darker part of the dark side. Okay? The Undertaker was a character who seemed to no longer fear death. He claimed to have dominion over death. And because of that, he had the powers that were necessary to defend us from our darker impulses. Sumo wrestlers that didn't wave the, the stars and stripes of the USA. Uh, individuals who would take his urn and melt it down into jewelry. Individuals who told us to pay our taxes. The Undertaker defended us from all that. Okay, yes, that, I'm, I'm, I'm waxing poetic about it and putting it up on a pedestal to make it sound cooler than it is. But what about the Underfaker character? Okay? We all know that the Undertaker versus Underfaker match hypothetically didn't deliver. Okay? But what about everything that made the Underfaker the Underfaker? Was the character worth our time? We rarely ever talk about the contributions of the Underfaker from June to August. Because let's not, you know, when we look back at this, it's often we look back at the fun Leslie Nielsen stuff and then the uh, actual match between the Undertaker and the Underfaker. But there was a time period where the Underfaker was an active, living, breathing part of the, God help me for saying this, WWF universe. And so I want to look at the Underfaker as a performer. We're going to look back at every single Underfaker match in history. And we're going to see if the Underfaker did a pretty good job of being the Undertaker. Because after all, the cyborg Superman and all the other imposters to the Superman throne, they acted and behaved as Superman until the moment of their betrayal was imminent. So this evil cyborg Superman talked to Lois Lane, talked to Batman, he flew around and rescued cats out of trees and stopped global catastrophes. He acted like Superman to the point where people were like, well, shit, maybe this is Superman. We all remember that the Underfaker was a disciple of the million dollar man Ted DiBiase but did he channel the spirit of the Undertaker in his performance could it have been good we'll I don't know that we can really go back and change anything and I'm not here to do that but I want to dive deep into the Undertaker as a performer and see what we can learn across the way or along the way I probably should have said along but fuck it now, to do this, I want to start at the Royal Rumble 1994. Why? Why do I want to do that? Well, this is not only the death of The Undertaker in his dangerous struggle with his doomsday, Yokozuna, but it's our last look at The Undertaker uh, in this particular version. Okay? This is the version of The Undertaker that The Underfaker will be mimicking. Okay? And that's how we have to compare the Brian Lee performance to the Mark Calloway performance. Now, I'm not going to review the match. I'm, I'm not here to do that, okay? But I did watch it. I watched the casket match. 
And here are some things that caught my attention about The Undertaker's performance, his appearance, his mannerisms. And these are the criteria that we're going to use to judge The Undertaker by. So if that sounds like fun, stay tuned in and let's dive really deep into the life and times, the death and return, the reign of The Undertaker's. Now, just so we can all be on the same page and lay this out clearly, in case anyone is uninitiated, the Royal Rumble 1904 is, for all intents and purposes, where The Undertaker dies, much like how Superman dies in his comics run. Uh, It is a casket match for the WWF Championship against the mighty Yokozuna, where The Undertaker is the challenger. And so, like I said, you know, this isn't about recapping or reviewing the match, but Here's some of the important Undertaker details I noticed because, like I said, this is our last look at The Undertaker, and this is who the imposter will have to represent. So the Taker still has his gray gloves, his gray boots, and still comes down the aisle wearing The Undertaker necktie. Paul Bear, of course, is with him and carries the normal-sized urn. So this is the first version of the urn okay at this point in time Paul Bearer still helps the undertaker with his wardrobe when he gets into the ring he helps him take off the jacket he takes the tie the hat and takes them out of the ring with him now look I mean it's not that's part of the presentation I could hear somebody being like Jesus that's a real unnecessary detail is it though is it I mean if you're trying to act like Ric Flair, for an impression, for example. Are you probably going to do the Ric Flair strut? Probably. Anywho, um, on The Undertaker's right arm, right above where his glove ends and extending to his elbow, is the, what I'm calling, creature-slash-Frankenstein's monster tattoo. I I really don't know what it is. It's like the ghoul that has legs. It's irrelevant. You could probably at least see... Uh, a shitty artist rendition version of it in your head. His left arm, in the exact same position, has a different tattoo. Again, I don't know what it is. I couldn't get a clear look. But it does cover his front and back of of that same area on his left as well. Now, that's obviously important because those are details that you're going to have to have on the under faker. Alright, so it's important. It's important? Hey, Biney, it's important we have a good time in the Hamptons. I don't know where the fuck that came from. It is important to be aware of this because the faker is going to have to have tattoos as well if they're trying to represent that it is indeed a resurrected Undertaker. Um, And to tell you the truth, the fact that I couldn't make out the left one so well I think is a point in favor of the faker. Because as long as you have something, I mean, I'm sure there's one person out there who was like an Undertaker tattoo expert in 1994, but it's not as like you could press a button and watch any Undertaker match ever. I mean, if you had a tape, you had a tape, and you had access to what they would show you on their weekly television. Other than that, I mean, it's the best time to possibly try to pull off a stunt like this in terms of your audience's availability and accessibility to materials that could contradict your narrative. Now, The Undertaker is very much controlled and influenced by the urn, but acts independently of it. The Undertaker is quick, 
Now, he's not quite the best pure striker, but when he does do, like, punches or strikes, they are always the thrust-type maneuver. He ain't throwing any soup bones. It's all thrusting. Now, in terms of more of his appearance, his hair is long and stringy and usually always covers his face, but he does have chin strap... He has, like, sideburns that form a chin strap beard and connect to his mustache, and he has a slight soul patch just because he's he hasn't shaved underneath his lip. His lip. And the facial hair is very red. Now, as a person with red hair, I know red hair when I see it, even though I'm very colorblind. My hair isn't even, like, as red as Taker's. Like, mine's a little bit darker. But Taker's, you know, all of us, are, our facial hair kind of gives it away, even if our top hair is darker. But Taker has that real, like, red, red facial hair. All right, so I think that is going to be very difficult to replicate. As a person with red hair, you know, the old adage is, when I complain about it, people are always like, oh, I wish I had that red hair. It's so natural. It's so so nice looking. I, I, you can't fake that. Well, regardless, like, I don't care. Like, this isn't a fucking hair podcast, but people say you can't fake that. So we'll see if you can fake that. He also does the rope walking old school clothesline type maneuver as well. We'll see if the faker can replicate that. Now, this is just for entertainment purposes. A side bit, as I was watching this match, there's a tremendous moment where Yokozuna throws samurai salt at the Undertaker while they're outside the ring. And a little bit of it gets on some audience members at ringside. And one of the dudes who gets hit by it, like, sells his own blindness. It really fucking cracked me up. Undertaker does a lot of exaggerated grabs. When he reaches for something, when he grabs his opponent, he kind of uses his whole arm to do it. He's never just sort of grabbing something with his hand. He extends completely to grab. Now, it's not a 10 out of 10. Like, I'm sure there's a time where he doesn't. But overall, 9 times out of 10, that's how the character is going to move. He does have the choke slam in his arsenal. <laughs> Poor Undertaker and Yokozuna. That's a really bad choke slam. He does also do that flying DDT thing. Another side note... When the great Kabuki comes out, I was like, who the fuck is that? I did not even remember him. Also, Ted DiBiase is awful on commentary here. I kept waiting to maybe hear something or some motivation to maybe reveal why he was the guy that maybe brought back The Undertaker. I didn't get anything. The best piece from Ted DiBiase I got on commentary was when he referred to all of the heels helping Yokozuna as Fuji's forces, or as I'm renaming them as of this moment, the Fuji Force. Mr. Fuji is also hilarious uh, during the heel beatdown because he steals the urn from Paul Bearer and just laughs maniacally into the camera with Jim Cornette the whole time. Now, again, with this urn, this is important. Taker is able to fight off the onslaught of the heels, but when the urn is taken from him, he loses power. When Paul Bearer gets the urn back, the Undertaker's power returns. Now look, as I have said on numerous podcasts before, I don't care if you think that's stupid, if you think that's good, if it's right or it's wrong. I mean, it's okay to have an opinion. I'm not saying that. But the point is, that's a part of the presentation, so we have to make note of it and understand it. Okay? This is not about living in a world where it's like, oh, that's stupid, that's good. This is about understanding if 
the presentation matches up. All right. There are many close calls, but as long as Paul Bearer has that urn, Taker is not a you know he's not going down. Now Yokozuna finally does get the urn, opens it, and that green smoke billows. Okay, we can make fun of that. The green smoke billows out like the power of the Undertaker. You know, whatever. Um, but that is the moment where Taker is now able to be defeated. Um, famously, after the Undertaker's put into the casket and rolled down the aisle, the arena goes dark and the Undertaker appears in the casket on the video wall and basically gives his own eulogy. Now, again, good, bad, whatever, there's a lot of key information in his soliloquy that I want to point out. He indicates uh, that the Undertaker himself, or the manifestation of the Undertaker, is kind of like an energy force. He says the spirit of the Undertaker lives in the souls of all mankind. It is a flame that cannot be extinguished, of which the origin is unknown. So this sort of tells you that if you, if, if, we, if we are to take this as reality, this vessel of the Undertaker may be dead, but there is sort of an Undertaker spirit slash force that can perhaps be passed to another. Yeah, I'm reaching, but... Again, if these are his last words and his last message to mankind, he is laying the seeds that I can return and the person you see may not look the same. I may have a new vessel. You know, uh, it, you see this in movies, I, comics, I can't think of a fucking good example. Uh, I'm Okay, like if, if you're, a, well, this is not a very good example, but if you're a Green Lantern and you die, your ring passes to someone else and then they become a Green Lantern. And I don't know. That's probably the best example. Moving on. He says, Soon all mankind will witness the rebirth of the Undertaker. So guess what? That says, I'm coming back. Much like Superman, he dies, exhausted from his wounds. Uh, we get kind of our first taste of an imposter Undertaker as the representation of the Undertaker floats and hovers above the video wall. He kind of looks like Marty Jannetty, but not exactly like Marty Jannetty. While this might be ridiculous, right or wrong, it does perhaps give us an opportunity to hear Vince McMahon say one of the most ridiculous things on commentary I've ever heard. As the the Jannetty taker hovers, McMahon says, like it's the most important thing anyone has ever reported to another, THE UNDERTAKER! is levitating in Providence, Rhode Island. At the end of this segment, the Fuji Force opens the casket, and it is indeed empty. Now, a seminal moment in the death and return of Superman storyline narrative involves, like kind of right in the middle, Lois Lane finally has the courage to go into Superman's tomb only to discover that the body is gone. The next key piece of this undertake, the reign of the Undertaker narrative, if you will, takes place in April and May on various WWF programming when rumors of people seeing the Undertaker 
start to surface. And we do get a couple of ridiculous videos of just random people saying things like, Hey, I saw The Undertaker, including uh, co-hosts of Clotheslines and Headlines on the North-South Connection podcast network. Did you guys know that Ryan Gray was in one of these videos? Uh, he was working at a Dunkin' Donuts at the time, and they interviewed him, and he's like, Oh, it was crazy. The Undertaker comes in, and he wants 12 donuts shaped like coffins. And I'm like, Oh, geez, I don't know if I got any co- donuts that are shaped like coffins. That's a really shitty attempt at, like, a Boston accent, but whatever. Finally, things would reach a fever pitch or a boiling point on the June... 11th episode of WWF Superstars. And the world would change again forever. Now, of course, this is the reign of the Undertakers, but I cannot possibly give you information about this segment without also sharing some of the subtle pieces of information that came to me that are not about the Undertaker. Because, after all, I don't expect you guys to go back and watch the June 11th episode of Superstars, so allow me to educate. The Heartbreak Kid's mullet, absolutely out of fucking control at this point. He also looks like he's wearing officially licensed WWF HBK jammies. Because he's got a white tank top on with a big red heart made of glitter on the chest. Uh, He has his chaps on, but then he has white wrestling trunks. But instead of being embellished all over... There's just another big red glitter heart right on his dick. It's like he's wearing a onesie. He says, this Sunday, Diesel will fulfill my, I mean our, dream of bringing the WWF title to the Heartbreak Hotel. He introduces Moneybags himself, as he calls him. And it is indeed the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Just a quick note here, as Ted DiBiase's theme song plays. Shawn Michaels does a little dance. And they actually catch him on camera doing this, like, spinning his arms move, which is the same move that Jamie Lee Curtis does in True Lies when Arnold Schwarzenegger makes her dance sexy. He's like, oh, no, dance sexy. And she does this, like, hand spin in the gag and she doesn't know what she's doing. It's supposed to be funny. And it is funny. She's great in that film. Wonderful performance. However... Shawn Michaels should not be doing that dance on the Heartbreak Hotel. So Ted DiBiase immediately cuts into or works into his promo. And he's like, there had been sightings everywhere, you know, but he's mine again. I've done it. So they're working in a little bit of a retcon here. We all know that Ted DiBiase introduced The Undertaker for the first time. He was managed by Brother Love. And he was a part of Ted's million-dollar team at the Survivor Series. So, honestly, I've seen a lot worse retcons, a lot sloppier retcons in comic books. So this one, I'm just going to let slide. I don't have a problem with it. Shawn Michaels is the showstopper and the show stealer. However, Shawn, you should not be the show stealer when you're the guy holding the microphone. And this is, I promise, the last thing I'll say about... uh, ancillary things relating to this but i just sean is making little facials movements and you know giving the big eyes and sort of like nodding along with ted agreeing with him and he's just he's taking the focus off and like i like sean michaels i don't have a problem with sean michaels 
I can see Shawn Michaels being in a segment like this and being like, hey, Big Daddy Cole, watch this. I'm going to go out and everybody's going to look at me, not at DiBiase. And if he gives me any shit, I'll kick his teeth right down his throat. Anyway, Ted says, I brought him in and now I've brought him back. Now, the next piece of information is really awesome, in my opinion. In the Survivor Series 1990, when Ted makes his big introduction, he says, without further... Uh, you know, I'm not going to do an impression because it's not important. I can't do a d good DiBiase anyway. He says, without further ado, and then he says a few things, from Death Valley, I give you The Undertaker. And his, his theme starts, Wow, The Undertaker! You know, that whole thing. Now, I don't know if they went back and watched the footage, or maybe he just remembered, but he does the same thing here. He says, without further ado, a couple of other things, I give you, once again, nice little caveat, so he's obviously aware of what he's doing. However, big difference. From the dark side, The Undertaker. Now, I see three possible scenarios here. Slip up. Okay, it happens. Two, they just said the dark side because that's what they were used to saying. That was like a part of the lexicon. Like, look at the Undertaker, a man from the dark side. Or a subtle piece of information that this is a quote-unquote different character. I don't know. We'll have to see if anything like that comes up in the future. But I still give them loads of credit for the callback. I actually kind of really like it a lot. And I love, I don't know, I really focused in on that difference of from Death Valley, from the dark side. Again, I may be reading too much into it. I want to make it clear I'm aware of that, but I just wanted to point it out to the audience. He emerges from the back, and we finally get our first look. The wardrobe, check. Hair, check. Facial hair, check. Impressive, because that was hard to do. Face, it's a little too fat. <laughs> but you have to pause the video just at the right second to even see it, okay? Um, so for 1994, I'm going to call this an easy win, because, you know, not a lot of people are taping this. It's a one-time thing that you see it. Um so, yeah, it's just his entrance anyway, he hasn't done anything yet. He All he's done is walked out onto the ramp, and I've seen him for the first time. But I'm considering it a check mark in the win column so far. He walks over to the Heartbreak Hotel set. Nice touch here. He goes to mount the steps to walk up to the stage, and he does the thing where he grabs the um, uh, the, the ends of his coat and sort of flips it out and then walks up the steps just like Taker does. And I know that that might be, like, an easier thing to mimic, and, and that's okay, but it's also a missable detail. And I think adding the little details goes a long way. Now, he basically stands guard in the center of the Heartbreak Hotel stage with his hands crossed over, and, um, you know, Ted continues to talk and what have you. All right? Quick side note. I notice as Taker standing here that the Heartbreak Hotel interview stage has the leg lamp, from a Christmas story in it, and I think that's hilarious. Now, as I said, 
he basically stands guard, and the Heartbreak Kid is like praising Ted DiBiase. He's like, "Oh, DiBiase, this is this is great. This is amazing." Blah blah blah. Ted says he's under my control. There is no urn, however, so I'm wondering if there's some sort of control device that I've forgotten about. He then says, my undertaker has something very important to say. Shawn Michaels walks over and puts the mic in the underfaker's face. The camera is a shot below, which of course indicates that the person you're shooting is a person of power. A uh, little film 101, I guess. And the underfaker mouths along a pre-recorded speech that's played over the speakers, kind of like when Foley says, I quit in the I quit match. If you've seen that, you know what I'm talking about. And it's good enough. You got to keep in mind that I'm listening to this on a pretty decent set of headphones in 2022, so I can hear the subtle differences in the audio channels. Um, I can tell it's not a person talking into the microphone. I'm sure you could probably tell that in 94. I'm not trying to say I'm like some sort of fucking master detective Pikachu over here, all right? I'm just saying that, you know, as technology improves, what have you. But I want to say a lot of positive things about the camera work here. The lighting in particular. You can see his mouth moving with the, the speech, and it's fine. But you absolutely cannot see above his nose the way the shot has been lighted or lit. And it's really, really nice touch. It's completely dark above his nose, which is what you want to do when you know you can't, um, you know, produce a one-for-one -one replication of something. It's like they can clone the dude. Can they? I don't know. More to come on that later. Um, but yeah, it's it's really well done. Jerry the King Lawler says, he's back. And the, the Undertaker theme hits and Ted does his maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh, if you've seen the Muppets. What a great fucking joke that is. Uh, on the way out, Vince McMahon again delivers a fucking meme-worthy line of commentary. He goes, oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Like he's afraid that the evil Undertaker is back. That ends this introduction segment. Overall, not bad. The character is lacking motivation, and that's the goal of the mouthpiece. So we don't have an understanding of why this character exists, but they've at least gotten past the introduction and the quote-unquote sniff check. I don't. I, I pulled that reference out of my ass. I don't really remember. The smell check? That's like a, when someone's bull... I don't remember what that represents. It's not important. The But if you just kind of, you know... If you're watching this on Saturday morning and one of your parents walks in the room and they're like, oh, is that The Undertaker? Because it, you know, the vagueness is there. The overall look and feel is there. So not bad. I honestly expected to walk into the first appearance tearing it apart. I mean, you got to remember, we all know, you know, we all know the gag. So, but I, and I didn't want that to sort of interfere with my ability to be an honest to give you my honest assessment. So, like an 8 out of 10. Because, you know, the audio is a little fuzzy with the speech, but that's not their fault. And there's zero character motivation here, so it's not perfect, okay? And I don't want to, I'm not trying to oversell it either. It's just good. Like, good job. Like, when if, if they were to tell you, this is what we're going to do, it might be like, oh boy, that might not work. And well, hey, you know what? This first little four-minute segment, it worked.
Just a quick thing that I thought of as I was listening to Ted talk and waiting for motivation. So we all know Superman's arch nemesis is Lex Luthor, right? Who in some iterations of the comics is like a mad scientist. Some he's a conniving businessman. Some he's both. I love the idea that Ted DiBiase is kind of like Lex Luthor here. Because in some versions of the comic continuity, if you guys know who Bizarro is, the clone of Superman who's like backwards, he has uh, ice vision and heat breath and says things like, me am Superman, or uh, when he says, I love you, it means I hate you. I kind of love the idea that Ted DiBiase is Lex Luthor and now has his own like Bizarro Superman to fight the Undertaker Superman in case he ever comes back, if we're going to lean into this death of Superman scenario that I claim that they've borrowed from a little bit. And that's all I'm going to say about that for this. We now head to the June 25th episode of Superstar. So it's two weeks later, and we've gotten past the King of the Ring pay-per-view. Which makes sense. Nothing big was probably going to happen because he's introduced two weeks before, which we all know how the taping is. It was like a month before, but that's not important. There's no story for him to go into King of the Ring. And of course, the next pay-per-view is SummerSlam, so let's start building that story. It's the first ever match of the Underfaker, and he's taking on Portuguese Man-O-War PJ Walker. <laughs> Gorilla Monsoon and Jerry the King Lawler are on the call, which is fun. It's a rare combination for me. Uh, probably because Vince is uh, in the middle of the trial. <laughs> so, sorry, buddy. PJ, fun, fun little facts here. PJ Walker is billed as being from Connecticut, which is hilarious when he's Portuguese man of war. So, here they come. Um, the Underfaker and the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. So, now that he's coming down the aisle and you just have a little bit more perspective and a view that you're a little bit more used to, you can tell that he is not tall enough okay and his shoulders are a little too wide so the physical presentation here not as strong so far we also get a closer cleaner view of his facial hair and because the facial hair is the wrong color it, it's too dark and that makes it look a lot thicker which makes it look like a different type of facial hair configuration it's it's passable do not get me wrong but you know you're really getting a good look now, okay? Gorilla, proving that, hey, even though it's 1994, I've still got shit to contribute to this company. He says, the man from the dark side has gone to the devious dark side. I love it. It's a nice little character moment. Maybe some motivation. Well, it's not really motivation, but it's a little thing you can use to accentuate. He's always been from the dark side, brain. But now, he's from the devious dark side. And I don't really know what the devious dark side is. It's not a place you can go to, but come on. Let's let's go with it. So he does, that being the Underfaker, pronouns pal. He turns the lights on, and it's fine. You know, he walks the steps and summons the lights. But I can't really quantify it. But here's what it feels like. It feels like an actor who's doing something because the script calls for it, not because they're feeling it in the moment. Now, I'm I'm not an actor like Aaron is over the North-South Connection Podcast Network. Aaron, shout out to you. Um, I, I wish he was here because he could probably uh, pontificate further on this and have it make more sense. But that's, you know, 
there's a if you tell someone to to read a line, any fucker that can read can read a line, but not anybody can act. That's the only thing I can equate this to, and I'm not trying to throw shade at Brian Lee. He's out here with a very difficult thing to accomplish. Not only does he have to go out here and play wrestle, that's sorry, that's that's kind of mean. He has to perform, but he has to perform as someone else. And he knows that he has to turn the lights on because that's what Taker does. But this seems more like, oh, I better remember to turn the lights on. I don't know. Side note, uh, before the match gets start, promotional consideration paid for by the following. It is indeed an Ica Pro commercial. We see Razor Ramon lifting weights in Titan Tower. And the face Razor Ramon has as he's lifting and struggling to lift these weights doesn't so much say, hey, Chico, I'm lifting weights to get buff. It looks more like, hey, Chico, I ate a lot of Taco Bell, and now I'm going to have a hard shit. But I digress. We're back from promotional consideration paid for by the following. Undertaker is undressed at this point. Well, he's taking off his coat and his tie, which bums me out because we didn't get to see if Ted took them. However, Undertaker does the hat removal, just like Mark Taker, and he does give the hat to Ted. So... Okay, there's synergy there between the two characters, and I appreciate that. Now, as I'm getting my first perfect look at the Underfaker, I am noticing he has a minor thing in common with the tiniest of the three ninjas. He's got himself a little tum-tum, okay? And I, I'm sorry, I'm not throwing shade at the man. I, Johnny C, have a little tum-tum, okay? So that's fine, but it's clearly not Mark. And oh my god, his hat hair. This poor guy. Like, I don't know if they had to, like, extra straighten Brian Lee's hair. But he has a ridiculous line on his long hair, his long stringy hair. They probably had to do something to get it to be stringier because the hat hair is just out of control. Take a look at it. Once again, it's the June 25th episode of Superstars. After he takes the hat off, they close up. Look at the hat hair. (laughs) Poor guy. All right, so the bell rings and we get our first look. He's lunging. At PJ Walker. Excellent. Absolutely fantastic. His ink looks good enough too. A solid 8 out of 10 on the tattoo replication. So good on that. He finally goes to strike. And yes, he does do a lunging thrust strike just like The Undertaker. Which I'm not surprised. I've heard famously that PJ Walker and Brian Lee like worked together to train to become The Undertaker. So this is probably something they'd done a thousand times. But, you know, it is what it is. He lifts up P.J. Walker, and remember how I said that the Undertaker doesn't reach for things with his hands? He uses his entire body or arm? This was sort of like a half-and-half reach. So, okay, he didn't fully do the Mark Taker thing, but he didn't also half-ass it either. It's just sort of a halfway. He is quick, too, so good for the faker. However, some of his movements come across as, like, a park actor. And what I mean by that is, I don't know, like... If you go to Universal Studios and you see Captain America, you know, the kids are going to be fine with it. But there's something about the way that Captain America, like, poses and holds his shield. It's very exaggerated because, you know, it's a fucking Universal Studios park actor. Nothing against them. I'm just saying it's different, all right? So, the one of the first big replication of The Undertaker's moves happens here. The Underfaker does the flying clothesline, all right? And it looks good, but there's a problem. 
It looks too good. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever noticed that when Undertaker does the flying clothesline, he kind of, and I'm not throwing shade at him, but he kind of barely throws a clothesline when he does it. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. The Underfaker legitimately does a flying clothesline. The clothesline connects square and actually looks like a much better flying clothesline. But there's something about the Undertaker, the person, when he does the flying clothesline, it's like he barely makes contact, but it looks spectacular. The Underfaker's version is a straight-up jumping flying clothesline that takes your skull off like it's goddamn Bradshaw. And you know what? I'm kind of okay with that. Because the Underfaker and Ted DiBiase know that this isn't the Undertaker. So they're doing the best they can. I don't know what their ultimate scheme or con is. I don't know that we'll ever know that. But it's it's like fucking Inception. Like, the Million Dollar Man knows that he hired a fake Undertaker. And Brian Lee knows that he's a fake Undertaker. But he goes out here and plays the Undertaker... And his wrestling moves mimic The Undertaker, but it's better than The Undertaker? Like, I don't know. It's it's crazy interesting if you really think about it. And I don't want to make it seem like it's better than it is, but, you know, that clothesline really just, it got me thinking about all kinds of stuff. So I really wanted to get that point across. After he does the clothesline, he does his one-knee pose where he, like, reaches for the urn, even though there's no urn here. However, this is probably the most egregious of The Underfaker's sins, this pose is really bad. It looks like he's about to do a goddamn spin rooney Which, if he did do a spin rooney I'd stop the podcast, declare it the greatest thing of all time, and wish you all a happy evening and see you next time. But he doesn't. He then hits the tombstone. Gorilla gets to make the call. Tombstone City! And he does a really good job keeping his hair in front of his face. But holy shit, as I type this, he flips his hair... And we get a ridiculously quick but good look at the Underfaker's face. And oh my god, it doesn't look anything like him. The Underfaker immediately flips his hair back down in front of his face. So I'm wondering, and I'm legitimate here, did he do this on purpose as a subtle character move to let us know, the audience, that it's okay to know that he's not the real Undertaker? Or did he just fuck up? I don't know. He obviously gets the one, two, three. Uh, he stands up and turns the lights down with his arms, which is not something I remember the actual Undertaker doing, so that's kind of interesting. He goes to murder PJ Walker some more, but Ted puts the money in his face and controls him with the power of the money as opposed to the power of the urn. So both of these Undertakers are controlled by their manager's power, or the thing that they hold. So okay. Great line as they exit the arena. Ted looks at the camera and says, Everybody dead or alive has a price for the million dollar man. Maybe that's going to be some motivation moving forward. Well, I'll tell you what, though. There's only one way to find out. And that one way takes us to a very special episode of Monday Night Raw. It's July 4th, 1994. Oh, you know, because USA... All right, enough of that, though. So, look, another quick side indulgence. So, obviously, when you pull up a video of the WWE Network on Peacock, it, it starts to play as soon as you select it, right? I don't know what I was doing at the time. I pressed play. I don't know. Maybe I was looking for something. Let's say I was looking for my wallet. I, I, it doesn't fucking matter. So, the video starts playing. Normally, 
I, the reason I'm distracted is important because normally I just pause it and scrub to where I need to go, okay? However, I didn't get a chance to pause it and scrub, and so I was greeted with that goddamn Monday Night Raw siren. Oh, that thing. However, I'm glad that I didn't scrub forward because I got to hear Gorilla Monsoon and the Macho Man Randy Savage deliver a very special hello for a very special day. Oh, everyone, it's an Independence Day celebration like no other. Happy 4th of July, America. It's your birthday. Go ahead and celebrate. Buy the hot dogs and the hamburgers are running wild. Stars and stripes forever. God, I love the early to mid-1990s. I eventually did scrub forward, though, and found what I was looking for. And because I figured, what the hell, it was right before it anyway, I did watch a Brett video. You know, where the kid's like, Brett. I'm not going to yell in your ears again. I'm sorry that I did. But the kid's like, Brett. Anywho, we go back to the arena and bong. The bell dongs and the crowd is indeed excited. Ted DiBiase leads the way with the cash. That's definitely the new urn, and it's going to be proven even further as this contest continues. Now, Underfaker pretty much has the same look and feel here. His opponent is a gentleman named Mike Bell. When he summons the lights as he climbs the stairs, it does look better this time, so he's improving. Actually, that's sort of the thesis of this episode of Raw. Underfaker is improving. And then, well, we'll get there. Gorilla in the Macho Man put over the fact that The Undertaker is indeed the cornerstone of the corporation. Along with Bam Bam Bigelow and Nikolai Volkov and perhaps Lex Luger. Of course, we all know where that will go, but we finally get to see it because we don't cut to a commercial. The Undertaker is undressed by Ted DiBiase. Somebody isolate that soundbite and then play it as a reason for me not to host podcasts anymore. But seriously, this is important. We saw Paul Bearer take this role in The Undertaker's life. We need to see Ted take it in The Underfaker's life. So he takes the coat, he yanks off the tie, and then The Underfaker gives him his hat. We get As he, he takes off the hat, there is a fantastic shot of the right arm tattoo. Now, obviously, the tattoo is not the focus of the shot, but man, you could see it clear as day. And look, I doubt the tattoo artist that put this temp on his arm will ever hear this, but you did a fantastic fucking job, and you should be proud of your contributions to World Wrestling Federation history. And I mean that wholeheartedly. And then we get a close-up of the Underfaker's face, and I'll tell you what, folks... I'll tell you what, he looked pretty good. He had the eye makeup on finally. I don't feel like he'd had it in the previous appearance. And he's he looks, look, it's as close as you're going to get. I even got the timestamp for you. 38 minutes, 33 seconds, July 4th, 1994 episode of Monday Night Raw, if you're interested. What brought him to this point, Randy? Was it the money? I don't think he cared about the money. And then, wow. There is either a major retcon to the Undertaker story that I'm not aware of or a massive fuck-up. The Macho Man is just all sorts of put out by the fact that the Undertaker could possibly align himself with Ted DiBiase. And Gorilla reminds the Macho Man 
that Ted DiBiase brought The Undertaker into the WWF. Okay, so far so good. Then, the Million Dollar Man sold him to Mr. Fuji. And then, Fuji sold The Undertaker to Brother Love. And then, Paul Bearer, and I quote, ended up with him. He ended up with him. Paul Bearer, the character that was designed specifically to manage The Undertaker and has a litany of backstory with The Undertaker, ended up with him. Well, it's lucky that these two guys were able to find each other because the world enough is hard to, the world as it is is hard enough when you're alone. So good for these guys. But my god, I can't get the feeling. I can't shake the feeling anyway that the 2022 out on his ass variant of Vince McMahon would have fucking cut off Gorilla's head and mounted it on his fireplace for this. It would infuriate him. I, I don't know. Is this something that I'm I'm hey, I'm more than happy to be wrong. Somebody fucking send me a link to a YouTube video of Mr. Fuji managing The Undertaker, and I'll eat my hat live on something. I don't know. I'd love to be proven wrong. Send it to me, because I want to see it. All right? During this match, a lot of similar offense happens. I'm just going to point out some new stuff, because, you know, I don't want to make this a four-hour podcast. The Undertaker Irish whips Mike Bell into the ropes, and then does a drop toe hold, and then mounts... The ba- mounts his back and starts like beating his skull. Good for you, Underfaker. Uh, the referee's pissed off at this, and Underfaker gets right up and steps to the ref like we've seen the Undertaker do. He's really in the zone tonight. We do get a he's a fake chant, and I'm okay with that. That means the crowd's wanting to participate in the storyline. Underfaker does old school, first time I've seen it. He only takes two tiny steps out onto the ropes. But as a as a you know on the flip side of that, he certainly balances and stands still longer than the Undertaker usually does. So it's like two tiny steps, but then he hovers for a little bit. What he did though for the strike was he extends his arm straight up in the air like he's doing a big boy stretch. Like who's a big boy, Undertaker? And when he jumps, he doesn't strike Mike Bell until he lands. And when he lands, rather than punching him, he does like a clothesline to the back of his head. Honestly, I got no problem with this old school variant. I really don't at all. Um, But my question is, is he either not good at doing the actual version or is this a character, subtle character nuance? I don't know. I don't know, but it's interesting to me nonetheless. I haven't been pulled out yet. That's coming soon. Uh, The flying clothesline, again, looks great because Mike Bell actually jumps up as the Undertaker jumps up, so it looks like a fucking double clothesline from Hell Impact. It was really fun, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. All right? Uh, and the Undertaker, or excuse me, the Underfaker, how dare, how dare I call the Faker the Taker, when he lands from the flying clothesline, he transitions immediately into the on-the-knee pose. He's really, I mean, kudos to you, Mr. Lee, for this one shining moment in time. You are the Undertaker. Now, uh... Undertaker, or Faker, I did it again. I did it again, I'm sorry. He hits the Tombstone, or Tombstone City, and he makes the much better choice to no longer flip his hair when he does the pin. Good. Eliminate that, and we are doing okay. He gets the one, two, three. DiBiase has the body bag. They're going to bury Mr. Bell. But wait, Paul Bearer is here. Holy shit, we are actually getting a storyline development. Here's where I start to lose it, guys. And I didn't want to. 
the underfaker sees Paul Bear and stands up. Now, Paul Bear is sort of looking at the underfaker and longing and wondering, is this my undertaker? Because he's, he's staring at him intently, and Paul Bear is like squinting his eyes like he's thinking. Okay? The million-dollar man freaks out when he sees Paul Bear. Paul gets closer and tries to summon the underfaker to come to him by beckoning him with his hands, like doing the rocks, like, just bring it. That's what Paul Bearer is doing. Now, here's... I, I don't have a problem with this on July 4th, 1994. I have a problem with it knowing what I know now, okay? So, Paul Bearer, again, he's beckoning Underfaker, and Underfaker actually takes a step towards Paul, and Ted DiBiase starts freaking out like, No! I can't lose The Undertaker! DiBiase yanks the faker by the hair! The Undertaker is having none of this and gets right in DiBiase's face. Then he looks back at Paul and starts taking another step. DiBiase is sweating fucking bullets. And he brings over a wad of cash to the Underfaker. And in a hilarious moment, the Underfaker does a fantastic head whip when he sees the Benjamins in his peripheries. Someone needs to go back and add the whip sound to it because it's awesome. But the Underfaker looks away and again walks to Paul Bearer. DiBiase freaks the fuck out, digs into his pockets, and brings out even more money. Another head whip. And Paul walks away, shaking his head, No! No! As he realizes, this is not my undertaker. At least, I think that's what he realizes. I'm not sure. And that concludes the Underfaker segment for that episode of Raw. Now, what's the problem, Johnny? Well, on July 4th, 1994, we think this isn't the undertaker. We're pretty sure it's not the undertaker. But now... 2020, we, we know. We know the storyline is that that's not The Undertaker. So why is The Underfaker conflicted? Are we to believe that Ted DiBiase and The Underfaker sat down and had a conversation, a la Back to the Future Part 2, and we're like, now look here, Undertaker. Someday, a short fat man is going to come around and try to get your attention. And if he does, you need to act like you kind of like him and then fall for the money. Why do I kind of sound like a combination of Ted DiBiase and Hulk Hogan, dude? Hey, Underfaker, dude, let's show me them 24-inch pythons. All right, enough of that. But seriously, like, was this part of their plan to make the World Wrestling Federation believe that you are indeed the Undertaker? Hey, if Paul Bear ever comes around, act like you like him or act like you're conflicted. Like, I don't, I don't know. And I was enjoying this quite a bit, and now I'm pissed. Now, as pissed off as I may be, however, I'm not out of the game quite yet, and I'm not ready to throw in the towel. We move to July 9th, Superstars, so just a few days later. And folks, right out of the gate, it's WWF Superstars, and The Underfaker is coming to the ring for a one-on-one confrontation with Native American Tatanka. Because you can't just say Tatanka. You have to say Native American Tatanka according to this match. So, holy shit, conspiracy theory alert. We all know that Tatanka at SummerSlam will sell out and join the Million Dollar Corporation. Now, we know that 
Ted DiBiase knows his Undertaker isn't the Undertaker, right? So is this some sort of ruse to have the Undertaker take Tatanka apart and prove that he is indeed the Undertaker? Is Tatanka on the take like President Jack Tunney? And I'm being serious here. Like, fuck who lifted the briefcase at King of the Ring 99. It was the boss man, by the way. This is the mystery. This is the mystery that I want solved. Somebody call the ghost of Leslie Nielsen. God, I miss that guy. I wish he was still around. <laughs> um, have you guys ever seen a movie where Leslie Nielsen was a serious actor? I've seen some movie where he, like, fights a bear and gets destroyed. It's hilarious. I think it's... Fuck, is it... Is it no, Day of the Animals. It's a Day of the Animals, I think is what it's called. Watch it. Leslie Nielsen is a sleazy salesman, and he fucking goes crazy when the animals revolt against humanity, and I believe he goes one-on-one with the bear-taker, as Teddy Log would say. Anywho, that's completely from the side. So we open with the Underfaker's entrance. There's nothing new to report. They then cut to the opening title sequence of WWF Superstars, and holy shit, is it weird. It's like a fever dream, and a tiny ring WWF Superstars perform for our entertainment. It's off-putting, but you should watch it. JR and King are on the call, and it's a 1994 JR, so hopefully we'll find out which university the Underfaker went to. But JR does promise that this week on Superstars, the main event of SummerSlam will be announced. That's just a happy accident that I'm here for that, because I'm here for the one on one confrontation. Now, the announcers are doing some talking heads as DiBiase undresses the Faker, and they're clearly not in the arena, which is fine. I don't care. I'm not here to throw shade at that. But they indicate that last week on Superstars, Paul Bearer was in, I think, the Heartbreak Hotel, and he claimed that he spoke to The Undertaker. Now, this would have happened like two days before Monday Night Raw. Uh, it doesn't really reveal anymore, except Undertaker's on weekend, or excuse me, Bears on weekend TV saying, I talked to The Undertaker! And then on Monday, he comes out to talk to The Underfaker in person and realizes it's not The Undertaker, I guess. Here comes Tatanka. Buffalo. He's got Native American blood in his veins, and he fights in the World Wrestling Federation. I cannot believe some of the things that Jerry Lawler says about this man. Well, let me put it like this. He compares him to the part of a motor vehicle that makes everything work. I think that's what it does in a car. I think so. Like if your hood's popped open and Vin Diesel walks up, and he'd be like, What do you got in this 10-second car? Is that a V8 blank? Anywho... Ted DiBiase taunts uh, Tatanka Buffalo with the money, and he's distracted, so the Underfaker attacks. He is doing his full arm strikes, but they're coming across as comical in this match. He does the old school and continues to do his version of the move, which is fine. Tatanka is getting destroyed in this match. He has zero offense, and that makes sense, especially if Tatanka's on the take. But then Tatanka starts to punch the Underfaker, and this is a bad idea. Because when the Underfaker has to sell, and he doesn't sell much, like he doesn't sell pain, but he, he whips his head back like, oh, I've been punched. And the hair reveals the visage of Brian Lee, who's, who kind of looks like the Undertaker, I believe. Um, like I said, it's not really selling of pain, but just selling of impact. A fist fight breaks out, and then the Underfaker takes advantage by doing that drop toe hold, mounting the back thing, which, I, you know, hey, that's... I don't remember The Undertaker doing that, so if that's The Underfaker's addition to his character, good for you, Brian. At least you're consistent and you do it frequently, okay? Now, 
they try to build a sympathy spot so Tatanka can make a comeback, a fiery babyface comeback. And the submission move that the Underfaker uses is a chin squeeze. I know that sounds stupid. Folk, I don't know what else to call it. All right? He's like squeezing his chin, like Grandma does when she sees you for the first time in a few weeks, I guess. Only two arms of the Native American superstar drop, and Tatanka hulks up. Well, I don't... Would it be like buffaloing up if it's Tatanka? And I'm only saying that because Tatanka's WrestleMania the album song is just Tatanka, Buffalo, I got Native American blood in my veins and I fight. I mean, seriously, they say Buffalo like 88 times in that song. He then hits a flying forearm and for the first time in recorded history, the Underfaker is down. He's only down for like two seconds because he immediately sits up. So, okay, that's fine. You know, it is Tatanka. He is a name superstar. I, I understand why you have to quote-unquote sell a little bit. It's made better by the fact that he just immediately gets up. Like, okay, great. You pushed me hard enough that I fell, but it didn't fucking hurt at all. Uh, after he sits up, it's just Tombstone City. It's, it's basically a squash. It's a squash against Tatanka. So, we have two things to believe. Well, three, okay? If you believe this is The Undertaker, you're not surprised because, of course, The Undertaker would beat Tatanka. Number two, Brian Lee is a good enough wrestler to beat Tatanka without any troubles, which I don't believe. I mean, if it's, if it's, if it's you know, a real thing. Number three, Tatanka is on the take and laid down for the faker. I'm going to choose to believe that. Uh, he goes to beat up Tatanka some more, but Ted again grabs the hair and shows him the money. Now, is he protecting his investment from getting in trouble in the annals of the World Wrestling Federation, or is he protecting his new investment, Tatanka Buffalo? JR actually makes a really good call. It's not the urn anymore. It's the greenbacks. And holy shit, we transition immediately to Todd Pettengale in the SummerSlam Event Center. Now, this is the very first inkling that we get that there are two Undertakers. Okay? And, honestly, it should not have happened this way, in my opinion. And I'm going to play for you the clip of what happens, all right? But, why announce Undertaker versus Undertaker before Paul Bearer has claimed that he will be bringing back the Undertaker? Why not have him come out after this match and be like, You're not the Undertaker! My Undertaker will destroy you! And then the next week on Superstars or Raw or whatever... Then make this announcement, because then it makes sense. Because as of this moment, it makes no narrative sense. Okay? So, here we go. Let's hear what the Toadster has to say. I'm here to announce the main event for SummerSlam, which, frankly, I, I don't understand all that much, but according to this piece of paper I got directly from President Jack Tunney's office, the main event is listed right here. Are you ready for this? The Undertaker, the man you just saw, the man from the dark side, standing at 6 feet, 10 and a half inches tall, over 300 pounds, featured in the main event, taking on The Undertaker. This is mind-boggling. Can you believe this? Two Undertakers. I mean, I guess there are two because one guy couldn't be in the ring all by himself. This is going to be an absolutely awesome matchup. The Undertaker against the Undertaker. Uh, again, I'm a little embarrassed to say I don't know a whole lot about it. I am excited. It certainly is a first in the World Wrestling Federation. Let's switch gears here and go to a man who probably can shed a little light on this subject. It's Paul Bearer. The Undertaker 
the man chosen to protect the innocent from the evil of darkness. And everyone knows that money is the root of all evil. Now, once again, my undertaker rises from the depths of darkness. At SummerSlam, Ted DiBiase, your undertaker will be destroyed, and you will both rest in peace. So this is it. This is the turning point in the saga. Paul Bear at least has made it clear that he believes he has my Undertaker! But the match has been announced. I don't know. Why not play the Paul Bear clip before? Uh, okay, now I'm just splitting hairs, okay? So now the audience is at least aware. We may not know exactly what's going on, but we know, I guess hypothetically, that there are two Undertakers, unless he's going to wrestle himself. Hi, Todd Pentengale here in the WWF SummerSlam Event Center. Could you believe that one WWF superstar could wrestle himself? It could happen, I guess. Fuck you, Todd Pettengill. You're so annoying. But the presentation should now change, in my opinion. The story has evolved, and that is okay. Because we should not go to SummerSlam with a mystery. We should understand, in my opinion, at this point, that the Underfaker is a fake. I guess we do, but does everyone else? Well, let's go see. Because the Underfaker doesn't wrestle again until July 30th. And admitted, that's a lot of time that may have passed when it comes to video presentations, announcements, talking head segments, Leslie Nielsen videos, which have started at this point. But let's see what's changed in the presentation of the Underfaker and how is he being spoken of. Because this match reveals to us the answers to those mysteries. Like I said, it's the July 30th episode of Superstars. If anyone cares... This is the episode where Bob Backlund and Bret Hart have their match. I didn't watch it, though. I couldn't be bothered, because I have to watch The Underfaker. Go figure. Now, during The Underfaker's entrance, here's where we start to understand the internal narrative. Jerry the King Lawler, now, of course, he's the heel, so take this with a grain of salt, is selling the fact that Paul Bearer has found someone that's willing to pretend to be The Undertaker. Okay, okay, but he's the heel. What does JR think? Well, JR says that he's confused because Ted DiBiase clearly has The Undertaker. So here we go, folks. We know that The Undertaker is fighting The Undertaker at SummerSlam. We know that Paul Bearer claims to be bringing back his Undertaker, whatever that means. And I'm doing the finger quotes. We know what that means. But internally, within the world of the World Wrestling Federation, yikes, probably should have think of instead. Damn it, I didn't want to say it. Let me do, take two. Within the universe of the World Wrestling Federation. Oh, I want to hit myself. Uh, they believe that Ted's is the real one. Now, that's, I guess, okay. Even though, I mean, it makes everybody seem really stupid. But, whatever. We move on. I just want to point out, also, uh, that, like, as Undertaker turns on the lights, somebody says it's Vintage Undertaker. So... I, I'm putting my foot down on the narrative that Vintage Undertaker is an annoying thing that Michael Cole started to yell during the streak era of The Undertaker. It's just engraved as a part of the presentation of The Undertaker permanently. It's like saying he's hawking up or, you know, 24-inch uh, pythons, like if you want to compare to Hogan. Like, it's just a part of The Undertaker presentation. Now, his opponent this week is some jobber named Brian Hardy. Holy shit! 
It's actually Matt Hardy. He looks like he's about 12 years old, and it's fantastic. Uh, this is an absolute fucking squash, though, okay? But on commentary, JR does wonder who Paul Bear will be bringing to SummerSlam. So he kind of thinks that Paul Bear might be a little crazy or he might be t- telling tales out of school. So it's clear and concrete, and that's the most important part of this July 30th encounter, is that we, that being the WWF universe, believes that the faker is the taker. The match is only 30 seconds long, and afterwards they do put Matt Bri- Brian Matt Hardy in a body bag. So, whatever. Uh, no important wrestling maneuvers or character developments within the presentation of the match to speak of. But this gives us our direction moving forward. All right, And so now, it's, now we understand. Now, you have all this information, you'll never have to wonder what was the real take with The Undertaker versus The Underfaker. But we are not done He's got some more matches to wrestle. Specifically, the August 8th edition of Monday Night Raw. It's the opening match, and Vince and Savage are on the call. And Vince McMahon clearly believes that this man is The Undertaker. As he comes down the aisle with Ted DiBiase, Vince says, and I quote, Get used to Vince quotes, folks. He's in control of this narrative moving forward. There's no doubt that no one in the World Wrestling Federation has such a dominating presence as this awesome creature known as the undertaker or does vince believe that this is truly the undertaker and look i I, and i even just teased it i do a lot of commentary riffs with these guys i like to do impressions i think it's fun i hope you do too but listen to this next statement that Vince McMahon makes about the Undertaker versus Undertaker match. And I'm not going to do the Vince voice so you can hear me clearly. Ted DiBiase, who originally brought the Undertaker to the World Wrestling Federation, then lost control to Paul Bearer. Then from there, of course, everyone knows what happened at the Royal Rumble as the Undertaker was stuffed in the pine box And then he began his ascension, and he shall return. Paul Bearer's Undertaker to face Ted DiBiase's Undertaker, and the lights will go up at the United Center. And you know what, guys? Vince McMahon, still at this point in the World Wrestling Federation, is in control. This is his narrative. This is his company. His own explanation, to me anyway makes zero sense as he is talking out of both sides of his mouth. He talks about the Undertaker's history. Which Undertaker, however, are we to believe experienced that history? It seems as if he's talking about Ted's Undertaker, saying that he began his ascension and he shall return and now he's back. But then he goes to say Paul Bearer's Undertaker will face Ted DiBiase's Undertaker. So, He starts a story about The Undertaker, then mentions two of them. Well, who was the story about? I'm so lost. And and I feel stupid because this, this whole thing is not that complex. Okay? He shall return. Then he talks about two Undertakers. So who shall return? Which one has already returned? Am I being too critical? To me... The fucking Death of Superman storyline has made and made so much more sense than this. And that storyline involved 
technology that was alive, aliens, clones, and a version of Supergirl that was a shapeshifter. Luckily, as the match continues, Vince promises that we will only see The Undertaker versus The Undertaker one time only. The Underfaker is wrestling, is wrestling, goodness, is wrestling a gentleman named Butch Banks. Vince promotes that both Ted DiBiase and Paul Bear will be on the King's Court next week on Raw. Keep that in your mind. There's nothing really to report about the match, except that the Underfaker uses the choke slam to win. I also want to point out that during the match, let's say the Undertaker's hitting a body slam or whatever, Vince McMahon says, The Undertaker with the body slam! But then he says, Oh, perhaps I should correct myself, Ted DiBiase's Undertaker with a body slam. So again, now Vince, who told us the story of The Undertaker, knows that there's two? Let's keep going. Maybe it'll fix itself. Maybe. The August 13th episode of Superstars... It's The Underfaker versus Major Yates. During The Undertaker's entrance, we get more confusing narrative. Ted DiBiase brought The Undertaker back to the World Wrestling Federation. So now, we know that the story Vince was telling about The Undertaker being stuffed in the pine box is talking about Ted's Undertaker. But then he says, But Paul Bear will bring The Undertaker back! To SummerSlam! What? Let me say that whole sentence again without me interjecting anything. Ted DiBiase brought The Undertaker back to the World Wrestling Federation, but Paul Bearer will bring The Undertaker back to SummerSlam. The King is confused, as are the rest of us, but Vince tells him not to worry. Leslie Nielsen will solve the case. So there you go. That's the reason why the narrative has no structure, because it's all just a joke. How stupid of us, the fans, to have taken it seriously. The match is less than a minute, and The Underfaker wins again with the choke slam, so I'm officially calling it. I do find it's an interesting character development that on the back half of his run, The Underfaker has indeed transitioned to the choke slam as his finishing maneuver, I guess to make it easier to follow which one is which. Now we cut to a graveyard. Paul Bear tells us that this is where his Undertaker is buried. On Monday, he's going to the King's Court. Aha! We did mention that. Then he will return to this gravesite and start to dig. Back to the death of Superman, I'm telling ya, there's the spine of the story is here. Superman had a massive monument and crypt in the city of Metropolis. Now, obviously, I'm not recommending that for this, but what I am saying is that maybe, just maybe earlier in the narrative, they should have established something similar in a sense that the big the big finish is Paul Bear digging up The Undertaker. We'll get there, okay? But this is the first time we're seeing or hearing about any sort of graveyard that was The Undertaker's final resting place. Why not have Paul Bear cut promos from this graveyard for months? Being like, Ted DiBiase, I don't know what you're talking about. The Undertaker's buried here. I buried him myself. And then he walks in to pay homage, and then he sprints out. He's gone! He's gone! My Undertaker is gone! Oh, yes! I should probably warn you when I do the Paul Bear to turn the volume down. But seriously, 
If they had just done something as silly as that, the Undertaker's body is gone. What? I don't know. It's not my job to fix this. I just... It started off okay, like it might not have been as bad as we remembered it. And I'm just... Uh. I will say this, though. Luckily, next week, or the couple days later, on this King's Court, things become at least a little bit clearer in terms of the in-universe narrative. It's August 15th, and the King has Ted DiBiase into the, in the ring already, and Lawler explains that Ted DiBiase brought The Undertaker back to the WWF, and we should have all been grateful, but now Ted DiBiase is facing ridicule, and people don't believe him because Paul Bearer is making these unabashed claims that the man that Ted DiBiase manages is, in fact, not The Undertaker. So that at least creates character motivation for Paul Bearer and Ted DiBiase, kind of. It's a little too late for DiBiase, but we're still it's still okay to establish Bearer's motivation at this point, in my opinion. Um, they bring out Paul Bearer, and King's like, there's no basis for your claims. Ted DiBiase has been coming out for months with The Undertaker. Paul Bearer, you have no proof. Where's your proof? Paul Bearer says, and you might want to turn the volume down because I'm going to do a Paul Bearer impression. I've seen the evil that you've purchased. The evil you call the Undertaker. You're having fun, aren't you? Trying to tarnish the name of the Undertaker. I have a message for your so-called Undertaker. My Undertaker will destroy him! So, now the story seems very simple. And that's okay. And I've been hard on it because I wanted to point out the inconsistencies to make my point. It didn't have to be this stupid. With like all the announcers and all the characters and all the hype people and all the story and all the like, it's Undertaker versus Undertaker at the WWF SummerSlam. Like they didn't, the people in the universe didn't have to be this stupid, right? If you do this little bit where the Undertaker's body vanishes from his tomb months ago, it's real simple. Ted DiBiase has The Undertaker. Ah, uh, you know, Jerry Lawler, I'm not quite sure that that's unquestionably The Undertaker. But no one doubts a thing. I just... It, it would not... Uh, I will, let me, let's get to the finish. Uh, Ted DiBiase brings out The Under Faker. And this should be like the moment of truth. The Faker and Paul Bear are face-to-face. -face. And I will say this. Paul Bear decently adds to the end of this Underfaker narrative. Here comes another Paul impression. Uh, take the proper volume precautions. Oh yes, I see the evil in your eyes. But you know at SummerSlam, those eyes will be closed forever because the true Undertaker will destroy you. At this, the Underfaker starts to choke Paul Bearer. The lights turn off for quite a bit of time and a purple light shines in the ring we see now that Paul Bear is safe on the outside and delivers the very famous very memorable promo moment turn your volume down my undertaker he's here he's here now DiBiase is looking everywhere afraid is he afraid that his ruse will be discovered? Well, we don't know. We can infer that, but the character, we never get that payoff. Even the 
under Faker himself is looking around, showing a small character break, like he's looking around, like he might have to save himself, perhaps? This was the time. This was the moment to change directions, in my opinion. Maybe this was the right moment to pull the curtain back on Ted DiBiase's true plot. It's the last thing I'll say about the death of Superman and its similarities. The cyborg Superman, who was one of the imposters that turned out to be the one that was evil, he acted like a normal Superman for three-fourths of the story. And this story lasted a year and some change, okay? And then he dropped a bomb on Coast City, which is sort of like a simile for like San Francisco or Los Angeles. And that city was destroyed completely, and millions of characters and humans in the DC Universe were killed. He had a plan. He had an endgame. He had a reason, something to accomplish. Not having that for the Underfaker and Ted DiBiase is the failure of this storyline. It is not the cartoonish nature. It is not the performance of Brian Lee. It is the lack of a narrative motive and reasoning for this to even occur. We then head to superstars for the promised digging up of The Undertaker. Paul Bearer is in a grave that's like five feet deep. He says on Raw he felt the true power of The Undertaker, and he now knows, after being face-to-face, that Ted's Undertaker is pure evil. He is digging, and he is close to the Undertaker's final resting place. In one week's time at SummerSlam, my Undertaker will defeat your evil Undertaker. And that is the final word of the story. That is the entire story. We don't have to go any further. We all know what happens at SummerSlam. And whether or not you think it's entertaining, not entertaining, that's fine. You're allowed to think whatever you want. I'm not here to change your opinion. But what I am here to say is that what happens at SummerSlam does not clear up or add any additional storyline information. And we never learn who these people are, that being the faker, and Ted DiBiase to a deeper extent, or to a lesser extent perhaps. But more importantly... We never, ever understand why. And that is the story of the Underfaker. The pieces were here. Regardless of if you think, I think, they think, anyone thinks it was a good idea, a bad idea, too cartoony, stupid, was never going to make pay-per-view buys, that's fine. Like, that's... We're all allowed to have opinions like that. But the point is, is that regardless of all that, this was the idea that they had, and this was the idea that was going to be given to us. But why not take the extra steps to do it better? Why deliver the information in such a sloppy, haphazard way? Why not set definitions that your in-universe characters can follow to better inform the storyline? At the end of the day, unfortunately, even though it started okay, I guess the story in itself 
the death and return of the Undertaker, the reign of the Undertakers, was just DOA. Fitting that the Underfaker would go on to become chains in the Disciples of Apocalypse. But that's my final conclusion, the final word on it. I've watched every Underfaker match, folks. It's been done. And regardless of how you feel about any of this, or I feel about this, I am willing to give you this definitive conclusion. It wasn't Brian Lee's fault. He did his part. Thanks for coming back for episode two of Bright Man. gonna pay cause the million dollar man